welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source for the long haul. Who are we? Where did we come from? Where are we going? And how can we make the most impact with what we do here? This is your host, Richard Litauer, and this week we're doing something a bit different. I recently had another podcast, which I started in 2021, called Impactful Open Source. At some point, I realized, let's simplify things. And so here is a backdated Impactful Open Source podcast. Many of these podcasts focus on institutionalized open source, open source at cities, open source in governments, open source program offices. So without any further ado, please enjoy this impactful open source slash sustain podcast. Hello, and welcome to Impactful Open Source, the podcast where we talk about taking source code and moving it until it makes an impact on the world at large, either on cities, universities, governments, you name it. How did you get from that first line of code to making real change? Today, I have two guests on this podcast who I'm very excited to interview. I have Ken Udas. Say hi, Ken. Hello. Hi, Ken. <laughs> and Georg Link. Everyone, good to be with you, Richard. Good to be with you as well. Ken Udas is the program officer at Open Source Technology Management Program, which is a bit of a mouthful. I'm sorry, Ken, but basically it's the open source office at Brandeis University, where he has been founding a new course on open source, which I really am interested in learning more about. Georg is one of the assistants there. Georg is the head of sales at Biturgia and lives in Omaha, Nebraska, and also is the founder of The Chaos Project, which works really hard at finding manageable, understandable metrics for figuring out how your open source community is thriving. So he knows a lot about open source, too. Ken, can you tell me a bit about the program, what it is, how it works? Well, thank you for the opportunity. I'll start by mentioning that, like at a lot of universities, we're really early days in sort of organizing and supporting any of our open source initiatives on campus and so on. What I'm going to probably talk about more today is the academic programming that we're doing that's actually intended to support open source technology professionals, individuals who might be doing proprietary technology now, but are transferring or transitioning over, and supporting capacity development offices at colleges, universities, governments, and in proprietary or commercial settings as well. So in OSPO in general, an open source program office would help the entire university figure out their open source management, do things like license compliance, do things like setting up a GitHub organization for labs. And that's all very fun stuff and it's cool, right? Excellent. But what you're talking about is somewhat different. It's more like a school for open source, right? It's more like a, a way of helping people figure out what open source is in itself as a course. Does that sound about right? Yeah, that's right. And I have to say that the initiative itself, the idea of putting together formal courses, educational experiences, sort of came from what well, came actually directly from the open source initiative. Pat Masson, who had been there for a significant period of time, had received a lot of feedback from his board and from all the folks he was talking with that they were concerned that they weren't necessarily getting a good flow into corporate environments or into foundations or onto projects of individuals who are coming out of traditional educational processes, traditional MIS programs, technology management programs from traditional universities. And 
there was a need to actually put together programming in a non-traditional way to support the development and capacity of new professionals and those who are transitioning in organizations. I mean, it sounds about right to me. I don't know a single open source developer who says, yeah, I went to college and I got a degree in open source development, which is how I'm here, right? Every single person I've ever met has basically said, well, I fell backwards down the stairs one day and now I'm in charge of this project of 5,000 people and I don't get paid for it. (laughs) So it's like a common thing that happens. One of the things I've heard a lot from people like Dwayne O'Brien at Indeed is open source program offices are run by one or two people. And there's only like 300 of us. There's just not many in the world. It's a huge deficit and it's a huge problem. So what you're trying to solve is figuring out how do we get more people to run those sorts of offices? You're not trying to get more people making open source software, right? There's a difference. No, there is a difference. And I think that's a great distinction. I mean, really what we're trying to do is provide access to sort of, educa- I guess it's educational programming that supports the development of the capacity for individuals to be able to engage either in open source technology management or engage in other aspects of participating in open community. So we can talk a little bit about the sort of, and I hate to use the term curriculum because we're trying to break away sort of from some of the traditional educational vocabulary, but it is a curriculum. It's the idea that there are educational needs that have been expressed and we are basically writing courses and engaging in educational experiences through, you know, individuals like Georg and supporting that type of development. So, you know, right now, the things that came up through surveying individuals in the community, from folks on the advisory board, from folks who are um, at OSI, was that there's these gaps in terms of understanding how to work in community, understanding what an open community is, how it behaves, how you participate different aspects of management, and Georg can speak directly to that. But the other areas as well are the differences in the language around software development, documentation, how to leverage the community, that type of thing. And then finally, and this is for more of a managerial thing, is what's the business of open source? That is, why would any company want to engage in open source technology, open development, free release, all those sorts of questions that bubble up in an organization when, you know, culture meets culture and they're, they've got different perspectives on how we pay the rent in a company. So that's a lot that you try to cover, which is awesome. I just got off two hours ago a call. I tutor Latin for a student at a local school here. It's one-on-one. I happen to know Latin because I did five years at uni, you know, and that's just how it is. And I just sit there and I say, this is a word. And they're like, oh, cool. And it's very easy to tutor Latin. All I say is, let's go through the book. Let's read the sentence. That's in the accusative case. And it's kind of fun. I enjoy it. But it's easy because there's like a clear deliverable. Do you understand the sentence or not? Now, open source project management, open source community management, things like even using the word leveraging the community, that sounds almost capitalistic, which is often it ends with open source. It's so hard for me to even grapple how you would begin to develop a curriculum for something that you kind of have to learn by the seat of your pants if you're going to learn it at all. What sort of hands-on stuff are you teaching these students? Are they just reading essays or are they going to be embedded in an open source community with mentors? How are they going to figure out what the risks are, what the downfalls are? Well, this is a great question. and I am going to just say a few words and then actually point to Georg, who's teaching a course. I will mention that at, at Brandeis is sort of a traditional university. 
in which the faculty have an enormous amount of latitude. And so we knew right off that we were going to need to attract individuals to teach and to facilitate, to mentor, who were highly experienced, who had excellent sort of communication skills, who were able to translate their knowledge into what's meaningful, and to be able to respect the learner's experience as well. So why don't I turn that question over to Georg, because he can speak first person to that question, like what actually happens in the class. I will mention, and Georg will just move from this, is that we were anticipating that most of our students or most of our learners would be adults already practicing in some form of technology or some form of development or some form of community. So there's already touchstones and there's already some experience there. So I'd go with Georg, though. Eric, what do you think? The approach that we took to designing the courses, and I designed the community courses. As Ken pointed out, there are really three areas, the community area, the production of open source area, and the business area. So I designed two micro courses around community because that's my area of expertise with background I have in building out the chaos community where we look at metrics around community health and my research through my PhD. So this is really my area. And what we did for these learners that have already their professional experience to expose them to open source is to pull them into open source to say, okay, we have I'm basically just opening the door saying, here is what the open source landscape looks like. And in week one, I asked them to just collect the list of projects that they're interested in exploring. And then throughout the other weeks, we are looking at these communities to learn from them, how they work, how they're set up. And I provide some framing around this is what you're seeing. Here's the language that we're using in open source. And the learners are the ones who do the hard lifting of actually looking at the communities. I'm just there to provide some guidance and guide them in doing that. And that is the first micro course of just learning how do communities work? What do they look like in the wild? And The learners can direct their own learning because I don't tell them which communities to look at. They choose it themselves. And then we take that and see the second micro course where we go from understanding how communities work to understanding how do businesses engage in open source and how do we make the case as a company to work in an open source community, engage in it. And there, as you said, it's a little trial by fire. I asked them to take the position of being inside the company. I wrote the case studies for them to play out and they have to create presentations to their managers, to their other team members, to the stakeholders where they explain, we are getting this value out of open source. Here's how we as a company will participate in it. Here's how we will work with others in the open source communities while being fair and creating a neutral space and all of the things that are important to making a community thrive. And then in the last week, we're talking about how do we measure the success of what we're doing in our open source community so that we can 
secure new funding and continue our work as a company in this open source space. Because that is where I do a lot of conversations through my job with metrics and with companies. They need metrics to actually get their work funded. Otherwise, the OSPO is being cut. And I've seen this time and time again, where someone comes in and three months into their new job, they're like, yeah, the previous team got all fired because they couldn't show their value. And so they're talking to me to find out what are the metrics. So that's something that from this experience, all of the learners just have to go through. <laughs> so that makes a lot of sense. And it's really useful to see that you're embedding them in communities and they get to choose them themselves. I have a very simple question, actually. I love simple. Are your resources open source? Is this stuff viewable anywhere? Can I see these presentation mockups? The course materials that we have, because we are working with the open source initiative, are all available online for free. So the materials that the students use in class are all freely available. A lot of it are blog posts. I refer them to open source guides from companies like Google or Verizon. Just freely available resources. And we also conducted interviews. So one of the things that the Open Source Initiative was very keen on was to say, hey, we are a community of professionals. And if your learner wants to get into open source, here are some voices to hear. So we conducted interviews with industry professionals. And those interviews will be shared through the Open Source Initiative as well for free. So all the materials we created are available. I have another question, which is kind of odd. I talk to you often, both of you. I've seen you before. Are the people you're interviewing mostly people who work with other OSPOs? Or are you also working directly with projects that don't know anything about open source marketing? This is just an FFMPEG library that does a simple thing and just don't even want to think about how to build a community because I haven't thought of it yet. Are you working with solo developers who are kind of confused and maybe have 300 stars on their project? Like what's the level of open source that you work with? So the experts that I pulled in when I designed the community my courses are all people who have shown that they have done it successfully. And I was very cautious about having a good set of diverse voices from around the world, Asia, Africa, Europe, America, represented gender diversity. So also to have corporate projects as well as nonprofit projects. So we have all of these voices in open source. It's a very diverse ecosystem. I tried to pull in all of the courses, voices as much as I could. And then the learners themselves, they're all, at least the ones that add in my course this first time around, they are from government, from university, from industry, also very diverse. And one of the feedbacks I got was, we just love the discussion format in the course. And so I kept my lecture part to five slides just to frame the conversation of the day. And then I just opened it up and let them exchange their insights and experiences, which was just amazing to watch. How many students do you have right now in the first cohort, right? Is this the first cohort you've gone through at the moment? 
Yes. And I had oh, eight students, I think, in both of my courses. Was that just in and your courses or in the entire program? So the program, and Ken can speak more to this, is modular. So you take the courses that you need to advance in your career. Cool. And you don't have to go through the entire program. It's very modular in that way. And so it's not like a cohort of people coming in. People come in for one or two courses and then they leave again. You don't make everyone learn about protocols all the way down the web stack? That's, that's fantastic. Good. <laughs> I know this is really interesting in that what you're doing is, is taking some students in. And it sounds like small numbers right now, but the idea is to have orders of magnitude coming through the program. And the idea is to fill this need in the industry that we just don't have enough. We don't have enough people who know how to run these programs. We don't have enough people who know how to run open source projects. You look at projects like PSF. It's top of my mind right now, right? You have Eva, she runs it. And there's maybe a few other people on staff, but not a ton. But that's running all of Python, the entire language, which has millions of users. Hypothetically, it'd be great to have more people at the top more people part of that and make ways to get funding so that you could do more logistical things. All of PSF's funding, pretty well, the majority of it, I think, pre-COVID came from their conference. They would run PyCon, you could buy a ticket, and then that would go to fund the PSF. So ideally, it'd be great if there were other ways of getting more people involved so they can get more marketing, so they can figure out more ways of selling open source so that Python as a whole could be more stable. I'm not talking about growth for the sake of growth. To quote Edward Abbey, that's the ideology of the cancer cell. But certainly in terms of growth for the sake of sustaining the ecosystem and making sure that Python continues to deliver the solutions to the needs that, that people have. So that's all really cool. How do you think Brandeis will fit into the open source ecosystem in the next 10 years? And does my summary of where you're going and what you're doing sound about right to you? I'm reluctant to say what... I'll be doing in 10 years, never mind Brandeis. Five, five I, years, you know, just future. Now, What's the future? <laughs> I think that certainly what we would like to do in graduate and professional studies on this program is to be making positive contributions. What we're really hoping is that this model, which we put together intentionally to be very flexible, and I'd like to take a moment to talk just a little bit about that. But what we're hoping is that this model is flexible enough and that the management over in Brandeis in the program is sort of humble enough and courageous enough and so on and so forth to let this take its path in terms of it meeting real needs. So I'll mention, and this is just an example, when we started this, when we first got together and started doing the, and put together the program, as you would expect, it looked very much like what Brandeis does in every other program. So it was 10 weeks Sort of the whole thing was designed around a traditional master's student and the like. And we found out very quickly that that wasn't what was needed. So Brandeis is a university. Do they have modular courses? Are they a weird university in some way? We're different than most of Brandeis. Okay. Our program is unique, actually, which is great. It's a testimony to the creativity and flexibility at the graduate and professional studies school at Brandeis, where this program is, is located. So yeah, we started out with typical 10-week courses, and we realized very quickly that this was not meeting needs. So we had heard a number of things, and one was that 10 weeks is too long, and that I don't want to take a program, I want to learn some content. 
I want to be engaged in educational processes that are network-based, that are problem-based, all of those sorts of things. So yeah, so what we ended up doing was saying, okay, we're going to just divide this all up into four-week sections, and we're going to make it so there's no prerequisites. So any student can jump in anytime for any of the modules, any of the microcourses. So what we had to do, though, was build a for-free course that's a foundations course. So anyone who just is coming into this without any experience or with very limited experience can go and take this course for free. And then that's an open resource that they can use and that the faculty can use if they find that a student might be struggling with something that is really a little bit more of a pathway sort of thing. So we can send them over there. Now, we also recognize that we do have students who do want to get graduate credit. So we've set it up so for every section, so every two microcourses, you can get a badge or a certificate. And then at the end, you can also get for the two courses, if you do additional assessment, and you can earn three graduate credits to apply to your program. So if you're studying over at BC or at, you know, at Hopkins or wherever, if you're studying information management and you want to get a little bit more open source in there, you can go and take two courses at Brandeis and take an assessment and then you'll get Brandeis graduate credit that you can transfer over. So we've designed it to be as flexible as possible and to allow students to do what they want to do. So, I mean, that just illustrates sort of, I guess, that we're not where we thought we were going to be when we started. That is, we're doing something that's really substantively different. It's very different than what's happening in the university. And we're not looking at the same types of students that all of the other master's programs are at the university. So it's a little bit different. So that our students look different. They have different demands. They place different expectations on their faculty and so on. So what I'm hoping is that in five years, we don't look anything like we look right now. And we're making larger contributions, not only in number, but in like relevance, which is one of the reasons why that three of us who are involved with the program, myself, Georg and Jim Hall, are all on this program and we're all on the OSPO Plus community. And part of that is to, is at least from my perspective, is so that we can ensure that we're staying relevant. We're always learning what people are saying and that we can translate that directly to the types of things that are in our educational programming and our professional development. I like that. I was a bit worried when you talked about graduate student credits that you're building clones of out there. I have an open source degree. Like that'd be awful. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what? It's one of those things where, you know, you have students that are in traditional programs and all sorts of people engage for all sorts of reasons in traditional programs. I mean, for example, if I were graduating as an undergraduate right now, and I was like 20 years old or 19 or 21 and looking at things right now, I might say, I'll just stay on and get a graduate degree. And this might be a thing that I do. And then I get really jazzed about what I learn about open source or openness more broadly. So I want to go and find something that will you know, satisfy my educational needs, my personal needs, my professional needs and aspirations. And we can see how that can work well. Once again, it's a matter of that's an additional thing. So if you come in, you're just interested in learning about open source community, you work with Georg, you get jazzed, you go off and you do your stuff. That's fine. If you decide you want three credits as well, there's an option for that. Cool. And just to be clear, Georg, I didn't mean people who study open source are bad in any way. I know that's your PhD. I was just saying what I don't want is people who have like a bachelor's and think that equates to having, you know, 
made an awesome module and all done really cool things in open source. There's like the study of open source and then there's the implementation of open source. And then there's also the people who have degrees. I have two. They're on my wall. I never used them. No worries at all. One of the cool things that I've noticed just from these first few courses is the importance of connecting the learners with the open source ecosystem. So I brought one of my students onto our podcast, for example, and we had an amazing conversation because they are already so knowledgeable. And sometimes it's just a matter of getting them the right resource that already exists. It sounds like what you're doing isn't actually making a novel course and trying to solve all the world's problems in open source, but actually addressing a different need that's really prevalent, which is that adult education totally sucks and doesn't work very well for a lot of people. And it's really expensive and it's hard. And what you're doing instead is providing an easy pathway for people who are interested in learning about open source to go do that without having to earn an entire postdoc, without having to deal with a lot of red tape. But instead, here, this is what we do. We make it easy for you. Come if you feel like you want to level up your marketing game for your open source project. Come if you want to level up how you do governance at your project, right? That's a really tough problem that a lot of open source maintainers have a lot of issues with, right? So that's great. And I really like that. The name of this podcast is Impactful Open Source. Obviously, you're new. That's cool. That's okay. What I really hope is that eventually people go through this course and will start making a change down the line. I think that's what you hope for as well. But I also think the work you're doing right now is also very interesting. So I just want to spend a couple of seconds. How did you start figuring out? How did you have the idea of right now, there's no people working in Ospos. There's no people who know how to do this work. How do we get more out there? Let's make a university course. Was that an easy shower thought? What, what happened there? My guess is that Most of the people who are listening to this are saying, duh, yeah, of course I knew that. I have to say, though, it really took, with my experience with this, it really took someone with some initiative and sort of the wherewithal to sort of start reaching out and articulating the need to individuals and organizations that might be able to address it in this way. So in our case, it was Pat Masson at OSI. And in fact, he started talking about that about four years ago. While I was at the University of Southern Queensland, we tried it there and it didn't work out, not because of the content, not because of the subject, but because of the need to have open courses, which is something that I would like to mention in just a little bit. I'd like to follow on with that a bit. Go ahead. Yeah, I'll just mention that. So the idea really came from, I think, the broader OSI community, the community that's around OSI and affiliates and everyone that, you know, just the whole group of people. But It also got focused as we were moving forward. So we do have an advisory council. There's a lot of OSI people on it because there's the partnership there, but there are others. And we talk a lot to a lot of people. And our courses get vetted through all sorts of people. We probably should consider doing an open vetting process at some point to sort of eat our own dog food in that regard. But I'll mention, I would like just to return for a second to the openness issue, is that As Georg had mentioned, all of our content in the course is supposed to be, the content is supposed to be licensed through Creative Commons Sharealike, which is just an attribution license. Or we don't like this, but sometimes we have to, a Sharealike license, which is a little more restrictive, but once again, it's still acceptable. And it is difficult to find content, third-party content that's open. 
in some of the areas. So yeah. this is a shout out to everyone who's writing. Put the Creative Commons mark on your content and we'll be promoting your stuff. So there's that. And then everything that's produced in the course that's not student. That is like what Georg does as far as the things that he creates and writes. All of the interviews that we do are all Creative Commons licensed. So those are all available. Now, we're very early in this process, and OSI has offered to sort of do the content management and gateway to the video and that sort of thing. We're still working on how we're going to do the other courses. Right now, I believe what we're doing is we'll have kind of content available on a Moodle in the cloud. Right now, our learning management system is Moodle, so the actual learning design is embedded in Moodle right now. It could be produced as a common cartridge and be consumed by any system. But I think that most people just would be interested in content, to be entirely frank. But we're struggling with it. I mean, Brandeis is not used to doing open educational. It's just, that's not the traditional or standard model. So we're working through that as well. I mean, that's already a change as well, right? Trying to get any university to do anything. I was thinking earlier about the level of trust that your overlords must have in you to allow you to have this program. I'm not sure whether I call them overlords, really, but, you know, the the people you had to pitch up. And it actually speaks to the fact that you were able to do that, that if you're teaching that knowledge, I would sure like to know, (laughs) because that must have been the hardest part. We've got some great folks over there, and most folks are really open to these sorts of ideas. And once again, it's small right now, so it's less threatening. The real test will be, as this hopefully grows and becomes a bigger component of the portfolio of programs at GPS at Graduate and Professional Studies, how folks start looking at it. But I will say right off that some of the other programs are looking at the model and saying, actually, we're willing to work with your alternative model and have that feed into our program as well. So hopefully we get more project managers with this open source community or development educational experience as well. Uh, Lord knows we need more project managers and open source. (laughs) <laughs> so the issues there, I think there's too many things to do and no one's having control of what's going on. Yeah. So that sounds excellent. Thank you so much for sharing. Before you go, because we are out of time, I'm curious, where can people learn more about this program? Where can they learn more about you two? Where do you exist on the internet? Okay, really quickly, we'll post a link, but you can learn about the program through the Brandeis Graduate and Continuing Education Office, and OSI also has some stuff posted on their website, and we've got you know some announcements and a little bit of a splash page, and we'll post a link for that as well. I tend to actually use the places that I work, their websites, for my presence, yep. but I do have a blog. I post occasionally. It's called Latent Pattern Transmission. And I can post a little link to that as well. Awesome. Derek? I have the fortunate last name link, which is also a top-level domain. So if you go to the website georg.link, you find a website that directs to my LinkedIn and Twitter and blog and everywhere I am. So that's the easy way to find me. And then, of course, you can always find me in the Chaos Project. Chaos with two S's. And yes, he is LinkedIn. I'm sorry, I couldn't resist. Um, thank you so much that was really excellent i wish you both the best and i think that this program is actually really interesting just because it's solving a need that's there that not many people know about that's massive and i think it will have an impact if only being the first but i think the first is often the first person to finish the race as well the person leading the pack so well done thank you so much and take care thank you thank you
was great talking with you. Hey, me again. Thank you so much for listening to this impactful open source slash sustain podcast. Uh, It's been great to be able to repurpose these episodes, and I hope you learned something. If you have any thoughts or comments, again, please find us on the Sustain discourse at sustainoss.org or tweet at sustainoss. I'm always looking forward to hearing what you thought. Thanks. Bye now.